You're listening to JSCN, radio for the Jewish small communities. Welcome, I'm Ed Horwich and this is Jewish Talk, the podcast for anybody interested in Jewish culture and Jewish life. And Jewish culture and Jewish life is what you get in abundance at Limud Festival. And that's where I met Dan Levinson and Lex Rothberg, two guys who created a podcast called Judaism Unbound. Now, Dan Levinson studied law at Harvard and spent five years as a law professor, and he's been closely involved with running Hillel House both in Harvard and in Chicago, and now devotes himself to the Jewish community. Lex graduated from Brown University in Judaism and is also involved in Hillel, but he's also worked for the Institute of Southern Jewish Life, based in Jackson, Missouri, where he was an education fellow. So, for this episode of Jewish Talk, join me in the audience at Nimud 2019, where Dan and Lex invite the audience to engage in the idea of a virtual synagogue, one without walls and without boundaries, as if it was on a completely new planet. Welcome, everybody. So, I'm Dan Liebenson, and over there is Lex Rothberg. Um, We do a podcast together called Judaism Unbound, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, I'll just start, first of all, uh, just, just for the sake of um, introduction, that this uh, image here is a, is a menorah that we made um, a few years ago. And, um, uh, you know, it's kind of in the spirit of the experimental world that we're trying to cultivate that it's, um, you know, it, it's, t- it's eight test tubes uh, and it's the chemicals that are, make uh, glow sticks. So, um, which, which I sort of felt like was, was um, really felt like more like a miracle when you pour in the clear hydrogen peroxide and these um, chemicals all of a sudden light up than, you know, lighting a candle. So in some ways it's untraditional, in some ways it was actually super traditional. And that's some of what we want to talk about when we think about digital Judaism. So, um, so we thought we would start out just by asking you a little bit to imagine that there was a um, that there was a an expectation that there, that there was a move to a new to new planets, right? We're in the age of of uh, of going to space, and there's a there's a new planet that we can imagine that's going to be a Jewish planet, and it's going to have it's going to end up with something like 15 million Jews in it. Um, what what would be some of the the, the things that you would want to that you that you would think should be part should be happening in that planet. Yeah, and just to flesh that out. Okay, so space exploration, we found there's actually now ten planets. There's been debate about. There's been debate about. I'm setting the the stage. You know? There's been debate about whether Pluto's a planet. There's been debate. Um, there's now ten planets. There's a tenth that we discovered, mm-hmm. and it's for whatever reason, going to be a huge Jewish complex and you get and the question that Dan's asking is like if you had 15 million Jews on a planet what's the scale that you would expect to to see there what what kinds of organizations and like how many of them would you expect to see 15 million great yeah 15 million uh, maybe 20 million for the you know the, yeah. the synagogue we don't set foot in that whole thing yeah, yeah. um what should there be New planet, 15 million Jews. A Jewish calendar. A Jewish calendar, like like a like a physical one, or just like there should be one sent out to all of them. No, I mean I assume days work differently there, and um, if we all celebrate Shabbat and holidays at different times, will be very terrible. So we need to know when to do things. That's going to end up being really profound, and I had not thought of that. Okay, so that's great. So there's, 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 there's all sorts of different, there's all sorts of different calendrical considerations to have, and we have to have some way of setting a shared calendar. But, I, but I think that what you say, I just want to sort of emphasize that I love where you're taking this, like the idea that on a, a Jewish planet, the days are going to be, right, there's going to be differences on yeah. a different planet, which I, which I wasn't even thinking about, so thank you, that's great. Yeah. Others, what do we want? 15 million Jews, what should we build? A way for them to communicate with each other because they won't all speak the same language. Ah, great. Yeah. Communication system. Um, great. Um, other things? Yeah. Some sort of welfare system. Some, for, some form of a welfare system. Yeah. Cool. How many synagogues? Like, throw out, like, how many synagogues should we have for 15 million people? 
I mean, this, this is, no, no, I'm sure you caught this already. No, what? I don't actually find, mm. I feel like that the, the education system and welfare will be decided by us, the board. As the <laughs> yes. But um, I feel like community, like um, spiritual communities, can't be decided. It's like a book club. You can't have the board of deputies create book clubs because no one will go. Great. So I feel like the shores have to be, the congregations will naturally find their different ways that make sense. So I like that, but so let's say let's say we're not deciding this, we're not commanding there will be this many synagogues, but like if we're if we're taking a guess at how many synagogues would likely arise in the first you know generation or two of this place, how many would you expect to see? Fifteen million Jews. Yeah. You would need like between forty and fifty thousand shuls. Wow. So tell me about those. No, yeah. Because let's say you average around three hundred people a shul, considering some are large and some are little minyan or shtibbles. Yeah. So you'd ha you'd have so you need between forty and fifty thousand shuls, which cool. is wild. Easy peasy. Forty fifty thousand shuls. We'll get it together the next generation or two. Yeah. You need to work out how many people want the shul. Mm. <laughs> Love that. Love say? that. So I started with shuls. Maybe I shouldn't have started with shuls. Yeah. We all know that in the, the vast majority of Jewish uh, in countries that have Jews in the world, there's like tons of people, often the majority, who are not members of shuls at all. So there's the 40,000, 50,000 that you would have serving sense. some of those 15 million Jews, and there's probably lots and lots of other Jews that would not be in the synagogue at all. Maybe that takes us to 30,000, I don't know. Yeah, um, community but, yeah, yeah. JCCs. Also JCCs. Yeah. JCCs, cool. Community centers, cool. Um, yeah, throw, yeah, throw, JCCs, just like give me. But you wouldn't need to call it a JCC. Because it's only Jews on the planet. Well, <laughs> oh, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I was careful. So, oh, you, there, oh, so okay. I said, I said there's Jewish a Jewish planet. Jewish planet. I didn't say it's only Jews. Okay. That's actually. So I said that it would be. A, that, so the context, the su the context subtext of this planet will be Jewish. I think it's very likely that there would not be just Jews. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I, so yeah. A Jewish name for the planet. Okay. Jewish. Oh, nice. You got to come up with it. I want to I want to ask, um, and then we're going to sort of move off this in a minute. But I want to ask you, um, what questions, right? What what questions would would you want to know about this planet in order to to ask to answer that question about what kind of Jewish you know organizations or Jewish life we might have? I mean, right? One was like, how long are the days on this planet, or how long is the year, right? Um, are, there, are there what kinds of other questions occur to you when you're thinking about a new landscape for Jewish? Practice in Jewish life. Who are your neighbors? Who are your neighbors? Like, which planets are next door? No, like, who, if you're saying it's not a Jewish only no. planet, then you want to sort of understand what, what's the outside community. Are they friendly? Cool. So, so who else is there? Are they So, who, who, who else inhabits are this they planet? Like, yeah. um, are they Semitic? Thank you. Yeah, that's a, yeah. That's a good question. That would, that would play a role in which kinds of organizations we need totally. Yeah. What age ranges and what sort of education should we have? Right, yeah. What age range? What education? Love that. You need to know how travel works. Like, let, maybe you can like zap into a place that's far. Like, you might need hyper local or uh -huh. not that local. Maybe you can travel. zap immediately to another corner of the planet. That sounds. I think that's very realistic, actually. Yeah. Very realistic. Yeah. So maybe we should sort of transition. I mean, I think that we we can uh, sort of take this to. I mean, I think in your mind, hopefully, you see where we're going with this. But we want to suggest that. What's happening with the internet uh, and the, 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 what we could call cyberspace is something very analogous. Space. <laughs> something very analogous to what happened when the New World, America, was, was when, when people from Europe started to go there, right? Um, and um, so if we think about it as a migration, Right, the question is, what is it, how might we think about the internet and Judaism and the internet if we imagine that what's going on? So what, what, um, if we imagined uh, ourselves to be sort of um, early, early immigrants or, or perhaps those folks who stayed back and understood that there were others who were going to immigrate to the new world and were sort of imagining, well, what are they building there? You know, if we think about the Jewish landscape in America, compared to the Jewish landscape in, in Europe, Eastern Europe and Western Europe before, you know, in the, in the 18th century, let's say. If you would ask Jews in Europe in the 18th century, 
um, what they might imagine to be the Jewish, the way that Jewish life is organized in this new world, in this new Jewish planet, it's not clear to me that they would have said, that they would have described a lot of the ways that American Jewish life is organized, right? Um, and, and yet, or, or, you know, by the way, if you don't want to talk about America, I think we can also be talking about Israel. And if we think about Israel, what we would have imagined Jewish life in Israel might have looked like 100 years ago, and then to look at what it is today, it's not clear at all that that's what we would have imagined. Um, and because we understand that when Jews are moving to a new physical landscape, that there are going to be all kinds of factors that are going to come into this question about what is Jewish life going to look like when they get there. And yet, we typically have been talking about the internet as kind of an adjunct to our lives, right? So like, it's like a tool, like somehow the internet is going to um, be part of our lives, but our lives really aren't gonna change that much, so what we would imagine is gonna happen on the internet is either versions of what, what we have in, in offline, or some kind of tool that's gonna help us in our regular offline lives, as opposed to imagining that maybe the whole thing is gonna flip and we're actually immigrating to the internet. It's a new kind of immigration because our bodies stay where they were, but uh, a major part of our life is still in a different space. And so it's kind of like immigrating and not immigrating, but let's think about the, the part of it that is like immigrating and, and ask, well, what, what might this look like if we were really sort of moving to a profoundly new space? And, and I wanna introduce one other notion which is that any, in, any, in any sort of experience where innovation is a major part of it, that we have a tendency to judge the early stage innovations in a way that's not fair. Because what an innovation basically is, is like a baby, right? And we don't, we don't decide whether or not we're gonna keep this thing based on our, our present assessment of its value to the world, right? Because uh, well, there is some value. There is also a lot of pain, a lot of annoyance. Right? There's a lot of things that a baby does that are really very negative. There's a few things that it does that are positive that tend to outweigh those in our sort of emotions, and that's why we do them. By the way, you know, who is the kind of people that tend to have babies? Young people, right? That, uh, you know, young people, uh, there are all kinds of biological reasons, but I think also reasons that young people are more willing to accept some of the downsides of babies uh, for uh, either the, the current upsides or their sense that, they're, that what, what we really are investing in when we have a baby is its potential. Right? We, we believe that this is going to become something that is gonna be well worth the yeah. investment. And so, so just to hammer home on that, I, we've, we've done a couple analogies. Let's take the analogies to, the, to where they are. So we talked about a planet and having 15 million people. Our assessment is that the Jewish internet, or maybe the internet as a whole, or maybe digital life as a whole, because it's not just the internet, um, is that planet. And so when we ask, what would you expect to see on that planet, the fact that you say 40,000, 50,000 shuls, or even if we down, take that down to 30,000, to me, that's a call to action. To me, that we don't have, have 30,000 digital shuls. We don't have close to that. We have, a, we have a few. We have a few enough of them that we can actually like profile some of them and, and give a sense of almost the entire system in a short presentation. Um, but what we're getting at with that is that we want to see, we, we want to feel a deep need to populate this new Jewish space in the way we would feel like um, if any Jewish community with 15 million people had no resources and no spaces, we would be like, oh my gosh, we gotta build that. Um, and our hope is that we can see the internet that way. So that's analog one. And with the, with the baby, what we're, what we're suggesting is so frequently what people say about the Jewish internet is, why would you do, like, it's so inferior to like actually spending time with somebody in a shared space. Right now, there is something, I, we were just talking together, um, these are two folks who listen to our podcast. So we, without realizing it, I have had a previous connection to you. Um, that connection is less than, I guess this symbol for, is less than the in-person connection that we just had in, you know, 20, 30 seconds talking to each other. But what, the reason why we're bringing up the baby is because so often 
that's used as a reason not to build up the Jewish internet and instead to focus only on in-person communities. And I'm gonna say in-person communities in quotes because I actually would challenge the idea that what we do on the internet isn't a kind of in-person, a new kind of in-person, a different kind of in-person. So that's what we're getting at. So we wanna push past the idea that, you know, streaming a service online absolutely is not as meaningful an experience most of the time to being in such a room physically, but that's only a call to build that digital system so that it grows up and matures into more than just a baby. It's not a reason to say, oh, I guess we're gonna, we should only focus on the other kind, on the other. On the and, other and, and again, I, I would also sort of remind us about that how um, some of our own great-grandparents and, and uh, or, or perhaps, uh, at least in our case, not great-grandparents, but um, that looked at America and Israel, you know, and, and said, well, but why would I go there? You know, it's, it's not, right, I, either it's, it's the life is too hard or the um, Jewish life there is inferior. Um, why, why would we, we go there? And it's, and, and it's turned, you know, and, and obviously we know that, um, that it worked out. Um, so we want to give you a quick little uh, set of snapshots about what's current, what some of the some of the things that are currently um, sort of thought of as as Jewish life online, and then sort of uh, give you some sense of what we're seeing as some of the more interesting um, baby versions that are starting to get somewhere profoundly new, and then sort of have some discussion about that. So um, this was just something that was posted today by a friend of mine, and you know, it's kind of what we, it's old school, right? We're lighting Hanukkah candles, but grandma's on the iPad, um, right? And so, so the um, internet is sort of um, an adjunct to our lives, and it's helping us do something, but really the, the experience is profound, you know, is, is first order in person, but we're able to bring grandma in. Um, on and I got, I got a text literally 10 minutes ago from three friends of mine who who I used to work with because we annually light candles via video chat and we we're figuring out which night we're gonna be doing that. So this is a common thing. That people, I'm sure people in this room have done that with some folks too. Yeah. Right. This, I don't know if we can get the sound on this, but this is a video of... Rabbi, uh, rabbi, so this is a, a friend of ours, a podcast guest, she's a rabbi and she's using these videos that are distributed online to communicate with her congregation in a more effective way and they're creating cute videos. Um, it doesn't. You don't have to hear it. Um, and this is this is a lab. This is this is Lab Shul, which is a wonderful um, experimental uh, kind of synagogue type of organization in New York, and they're streaming their high holiday services, so people all over the world can participate in their high holiday services, which are actually quite wonderful um, through the internet, uh, right? And then we have Safaria, which was just across the hall um, doing a walkthrough, and Safaria is at least now largely. Uh, operating as kind of an adjunct to our to our in real life lives, what they've actually found that the thing that's most used that they do is building source sheets, which really are often teachers that are um, putting sources together for their live classes. So Safaria um, is 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 a library, right? But still, it seems to be largely working as a library for people living in real life uh, and using the internet as an adjunct. Yeah, so I think that's true that it's most common, but I wanna, so I wanna bring up a distinction, which is, so the streaming services and, and, the, and the Hanukkah lighting via iPad, all that, like, that is a beautiful example of, I mean, you said old school, and it's, I mean, it's obviously not old school in the sense we generally think, but it's old school in, on one axis, which is, like, it is, it is taking people that are otherwise doing something you know, on the ground um, and connecting them using, once again, using the internet as a tool to do so. And like the location where that's happening is, I mean, if I'm video chatting with people lighting candles, the location where that's happening, I would argue, is where I am, where that person is, where that person is, like that's where we are. Safaria is interesting because when somebody uses it in a class, when somebody is just making a source sheet on Safaria and then using it in a class in a day school or a synagogue or whatever, then the location is probably in the class of a day school. If Safaria is being used, I, I'm on Safaria all the time for a wide variety of reasons, um, and if I'm using it not to then channel it into, a, into something offline, but simply because it's online and it's the most, like the choice is I either have to go to the closest library or bookstore and like purchase the Mishnah versus go online and access it for free. 
Like that's where the location becomes online and that's where something changes about what we're doing because we're actually not using the internet to link different communities to one another. It is the community. Um, and so the next, I think the next piece is the... No, so the next, so this is actually the Apple oh, podcast app. And what's interesting about it, I think, so I, I just searched for Jewish or Judaism in the Apple podcast app and got this array. Uh, I was glad to see that our podcast was first there, but, um, but that was not... has Judaism. Right, but that was not really my intention. It was just sort of like, and what's interesting is like to think about this compared to Limud, because when Limud was founded 40 years ago, there there was no way to get the learning in some in some other, you know, in some other way basically. Now, so there were there are two values to Limud, right? One is the learning, and the other is the is the being with the people and and having this community. This doesn't necessarily accomplish the latter, but it's interesting how well it actually accomplishes the former. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's an interesting way that, the, that I think that when we start to see the Apple Podcast app as really a, a place of learning that you can go to and that I'm there all the time. Um, and, and we were talking about this earlier too, when we launched our podcast, I thought of it, about it very much as kind of like an academic endeavor, like we were going to be thinking and talking and hopefully people were going to be listening, but I didn't think of it really in any serious way that, uh, that we would have a relationship with the listeners. Um, and what's interesting is that in some ways we don't have a relationship with the listeners until we meet them in one way or another, either they send us an email or we uh, meet them in person. But what's been fascinating to me is the extent to which listeners think they have a relationship with us. And um, that was right. not something, and they're right, yeah. but I mean, that was not something that was expected, right? But it turns out that having um, somebody's voice literally in your head is, is, an intimate, um, is an intimate experience of connection to that person in a way that was really surprising to me and actually is part of the reason that Lex, Lex was, I think, on the Digital Judaism bandwagon uh, before I was, and, and recognizing that was part of what, what yeah. really got me uh, interested yeah. in that. Yeah, we want to talk a little bit about our podcast, and just as framing, we we do this, and I'm always nervous that people will think we're just like bragging, like we're talking up achievements of ours, which like on some level we're putting a bunch of numbers about things we've done on the screen, which is true. But I we're saying we're we're going to talk about these stats because I actually think it's it's actually not that much of a challenge once you're on once you're in the digital ecosystem to very quickly reach a lot of people. And the reason for that is um, all, we, when we zoom out our map, and I'll get to the stats in a second, when we zoom out our map and, and look at how many people we reach in various cities, and like, there's not all that many in any city. I think New York and the Bay Area, San Francisco, Palo Alto, are our biggest cities. And we've got in the neighborhood of 10, 20,000 downloads um, over the course of a few years in those places. But when you have an organization that manifests in every single Jewish community of a reasonable size in the world, all of a sudden, a few hundred here, a few hundred here, a few hundred here, a few thousand here, a few thousand here, a few thousand here, and you get to 1.2 million in just under four years. We've had 1.2 million downloads, and the unique listener data is a little shakier, but we estimate somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 unique listeners. So that's separate people who have at some point downloaded our podcast. It's, it's like a mind-boggling number, and ultimately it comes from a guy in his basement in Chicago with a microphone that costs just over $100, a guy um, in his apartment in Providence, Rhode Island, in, you know, halfway across the United States from him with a microphone that costs $130, um, and about per month just over a hundred dollars in what we call digital infrastructure which is the equivalent of like our building you know like our our utilities all of that is just paying for our feed and so that's pretty much all of our cost we have our salaries because this is something we do as our jobs but that's it and so when we calculate our uh, when we calculate how much we spend per download it's under one American penny. We spend less than a penny for every experience somebody in the world has with our Jewish project. And to me, 
once again, it's not, it's not that we're uniquely talented at that. I would guess if you looked at other, other popular Jewish podcasts, it's very similar. Because the second you're available to absolutely everybody, the, the, the amount that every dollar goes to is just super expanded. Um, so it's a really powerful thing. And so like the, the analogy I like to make is that if you spent 10 bucks total on a program and 250 people came, that's, that's the equivalent to the amount we've spent versus the 1.2 million downloads that we've reached. So we want to talk a little, a few, about a few other um, ways that people are using the internet now in sort of even more profound ways. So one that we want to tell you a little bit about is our friend Juan Mejia, who was a, um, who was our guest on our podcast, and he is an, a really amazing guy. He grew up in Colombia, the country, Catholic, and um, discovered that he had Jewish uh, family roots, and that you know, but in the Spanish Inquisition, they were forced to convert, and so he ended up converting to Judaism um, and becoming a rabbi. And he started to, and he realized that in Colombia there were um, very few Jewish libraries. So this really gets to the question of physical versus digital, because in Colombia, when he was taking an interest in Judaism, he could barely find a book on Judaism in the whole country of Colombia, and he ended up come, going to Israel for a year, and that was where he really learned about Judaism. So he said, I want to change the situation for the people like me. So there are all these other, and by the way, the statistics are incredible about the percentage of um, non-Jews in um, Central America who actually have Jewish family backgrounds. It's a huge percentage. So um, he's saying there are all these people in Central America, um, could I somehow make this stuff available? So he started to create YouTube videos and various other ways, and, and now he's just come out with a uh, Sidur that's online, and it's all aimed at people like from his background. Now, now what happened is that the people in these communities, also, also people who, who had family backgrounds of being Jewish, wanted to uh, formally convert to Judaism, and he would do these kind of mass conversions, usually, I think, in person, but there have been some online as well, uh, but then what was really interesting was that he started to get inquiries from people who said, you know, I don't have any family background of, of being Jewish, but I've come across your, uh, your Spanish language teachings on the internet, and I, I'm really interested in becoming Jewish. Like, would you help me convert to Judaism? And initially he felt like, um, well, I don't know, that wasn't really why I went into doing this. But at a certain point, he said, well, what's really the difference between somebody who had a family background from 500 years ago that they were Jewish versus somebody who didn't? They're, you know, so yeah, so he started to um, help those people convert as well. And you know, my, my question in thinking about that was always, well, what's going to happen when we have the Juan Mejia from China, you know, who, who, who makes, right, uh, or India, who you know, makes a world of billions of people Right, if even just a small percentage of those wanted to become Jewish, not only would we have so many more Jews, but the sort of profile, right? We've been talking a lot about Jews of color and uh, here at Limud, like the, what we thought of as a Jew could change profoundly. So, um, so you know, something like, so this is just the, this is really, really, really a baby. And, but when you look at this baby, you can see, wow, that is going to be some adult. Yeah, and I, I just want to say, like, there's, with Juan Mejia, he's a great example. He, on his own, just to emphasize, like, he has seeded, like, S-E-E-D, um, I think it's a couple dozen, like, communities of Jews in, in Latin America. And so some of them, yeah, it's a mixture of people who either trace themselves to Jews in Spain or just people who don't. But just one person through the internet has done this. And, and the, the whole system rapidly changes when we start to think about what will it be, because none of us know, what will it be in 100 years, 200 years, when the internet has matured and isn't the baby so much, when it's very easy for that Chinese version of Juan Mejia or that Indian version of Juan Mejia to arise. Um, what happens to, like, how does Judaism change when that access is there? And by the way, we're already seeing some of this with all the discourse, um, in the States at least, around there's more and more Christians that like lead Passover seders. Or do, and a huge reason for that is like, what does it take to learn what a Passover seder is today? A Google search. What did it take to learn what a Passover seder was even 40, 50 years ago? You know, going to the library, I guess, or at least knowing what to look for and like taking a few steps. The second that changes, everybody's access to everything radically shifts. And so I'm not saying that that's that I want necessarily lots of, that 
lots of Christians leading Passover seders, but like I don't not want it, I guess. And I'm excited about what happens when all of a sudden the the people who are Jewish have access to their to their source material in that way. Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, I, I'm just going to throw a little black hat thinking in, um, which is about um, safety and uh, quality control and mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of issues, because anybody could be following anybody as yeah. they do now. Yeah. Um, and there's no way really of knowing who you're following, is there? No, there isn't. And I don't. I don't have. I yeah. I don't. I don't have any. It's the Wild West. But yeah, I can't. Yeah, I, that's, yeah, that's I, yeah. It's the yeah, Wild yeah. West now. Yeah. And do you envisage? As it develops, do you envisage it becoming a little more civilized? I don't know. I have no idea. I like for, honestly. I agree with that. I agree very strongly with that challenge and danger. Um, I think that whether we whether we see that changing in the future or remaining the same or somewhere in the middle, it is where it is. Mm. And ultimately, uh, and it's, it's an interesting question to ask with this screen because um, I'm about to talk about Jewish Facebook groups, and these groups all have like actual moderators. People that are in charge of of checking those groups regularly and filtering, and there's rules for a lot of them. And I would argue that being a moderator of a Jewish Facebook today is an equivalent kind of role, often to being like a lay leader, being on the board of a synagogue, or be, like the people take it very seriously, especially in some of these bigger groups. Um, so I'll get to what this is. Um, this is a snapshot of Jewbook from this morning. So Jewbook is not a real thing. Um, Jewbook is a is a made up term for the loose set of Jewish Facebook groups that people all around the world join. Um, sometimes when people use the phrase Jewbook, they're associating it with a certain subsection that skews towards the left politically. But I use Jewbook just generally referring to the huge network of Jewish Facebook groups. And I want to spotlight specifically a number of groups that are, that their location, once again, is digital. There are some groups who, it's the synagogue, and they have their Facebook groups so that they don't, that they can connect with each other or whatever. There's, you know, the regional organization that has a Facebook group. These are groups that don't have a physical location separate from Facebook. They're transnational. Um, and there's just dozens upon dozens of groups with membership in the thousands. These are not small, trivial things, and they're very, very active. They have hundreds of comments a day. So these, these are, by the way, these are all groups I am personally in. So you're getting only one tiny microcosm of a much larger system. So this right here is called de-assimilation education. I spotlight it um, because I think it's fulfilling an especially important role, which is it exists for people who are often recently converts or in the process of converting, or for whatever reason, may, maybe they were born Jewish, but they didn't have much Jewish background and are very insecure about their knowledge of holidays, whatever, to ask questions and to have a, people of different frames of reference. Or you, you start your post with my frame of reference is that I am orthodox or that I am renewal or that I am reform. Um, and it's a way for people to access that. There's 2,000 people, over 2,000 people in this group. And in, I, I just checked this morning. Um, in the last 24 hours, there have been nine posts, so nine threads that are each pretty active, and 294 comments. 294 comments in one small subsection of a much, much bigger universe of Jewish Facebook groups in the last 24 hours. And so um, here's, here's, you can see right here, 125 comments just on this post, and it's people over and over again sharing pictures of their menorahs. Often they are very humble little menorahs in small apartments, because these are people who skew younger and don't, it's, it's people sharing these beautiful homemade menorahs, self-made menorahs, people who often talk about how, you know, I don't have anybody to light with, so, this is, so the fact that I have this thread is like deeply meaningful to me. Um, that's one group serving one purpose. These are a bunch of other groups that I sort of randomly chose. JEDLAB is maybe the most old school or like traditional kind of group. It's a bunch of Jewish educators who tend to work in day schools or secondary education or whatever, sharing resources, asking each other questions, etc. Beyond Karlbach, um, the name sign kind of suggests what it is. It's a group for people who want to broaden the set of musical melodies that are used in their synagogues beyond just Shlomo Karlbach. Um, so there's a lot of newer music that's shared, creative music. Um, cool Jews is a group that skews very left and is basically a political discussion group, um, often about Israel and Palestine, but about all sorts of Jewish questions. 
Juba challah posting is just for wholesome, happy Jewish content. Like posting the beautiful challah that you've rated, sharing that with a few hundred or a few thousand of your friends. Um, doing this to bagels is incredibly offensive to my people. That's the name of a group. There are, uh, there are 1,600 people in it. It's been, in a few weeks, I bet that'll double. It's been like rapidly growing. And it's people like being in the grocery store and seeing like these heinous, terrible frozen bagels and be like, I can't believe somebody would do this. Occasionally it's not just bagels, it's other kinds of Jewish food that have been totally massacred um, in one way or another. And then Shana Punim, or Shana Punim, is for puns and wordplay. Plural of pun, punim. Um, that's one of my favorites. I featured it even though, even though it only has 812 members, um, and it's a small group, therefore, I featured it. But there's dozens upon dozens of so here we have an email. It's been shortened a little bit, but we have an email from a listener of ours that we want to, that we want to share with you, and then we'll go into Chabruta for a second on it. Um, and maybe we should do both of them, and so we'll do this one first. Um, just because I think folks in the back might have a struggle reading, I'm going to read it out loud. What, yeah? I just had a question, because when the, um, when the synagogue started to podcast, or just stream, or at least mm -hmm. my synagogue, it was really directed towards people, at least the rabbi said, they couldn't, they were in hospital, mm -hmm. or they were sick, or they couldn't right. come, which in my head connoted an older person. Mm -hmm. So there's like a disconnect a little bit between who the intended audience might have been and their ability to connect. Yeah. And now hearing all these groups, all the groups who sort of cited felt like they're on the younger side yeah. of the spectrum. Yeah. Are you seeing? So there definitely are there definitely are older people who do regularly stream services and synagogues often when they stream services the reason that they are doing so is precisely that and I want to poke into why because I actually don't love that that's I, I mean I love that they're that they're serving that purpose of reaching people who are not able physically to make it to a synagogue but I want to think about what that reflects because what that reflects is ah the synagogue is the, is the space that people should really be. And we'll make the other thing, but only for the people, but it's really for the people who just actually physically can't make it. It's not because we want, it's not because we feel that call to action and we think this space is actually really powerful and could be its own amazing universe of Jewish stuff. It's, well, there's some people who can't do our thing, who can't come into our space. And so we're going to do our best to simulate our space through a streaming service to folks at home. Um, I say this as somebody whose dad, every year on high holidays, he goes to some services, but one time, um, usually Rosh Hashanah morning, I think, he stays home in his bathrobe, he starts on the east coast of the United States, streams some services, he's a professor, he likes sermons, so he like tries to get the sermon times, then he transitions to the central time zone, then he transitions to the mountain, then he transitions to the Pacific. Um, so I, I know somebody very close to me who, who does this. Um, but at the same time, I wish that the reason synagogues wanted to do this was, ah, it's not necessarily for the folks, it, I mean, it is for the people in our community who can't access it, um, who are immobile, but it's also for the person in the middle of Alaska who has no synagogue anywhere who can't access for that reason. And it's also for somebody in New York City who has seven synagogues in their neighborhood, but they don't like them, and that's okay. But, and I, think, they, yeah. but I think that that's a, a key point that we're trying to express, which is that um, that the natural way of thinking about the internet for existing Jewish organizations is to somehow make the internet an adjunct to their organization. So they'll create a podcast or a streaming services, and no synagogue, I mean, well, here's the fascinating thing, right? There are synagogues that, that have thousands of members that have a podcast, but they don't have nearly as many listeners as we have. And that, I don't think it's because they're more, we're more talented than they are. I think it's because we're doing, a we're doing different topics. We're not, right, that, so, so what a, when a synagogue uses the internet as an adjunct, then I think it's doing what's called sustaining innovation. It's, it's adding a little bit more, it's, 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 it's sharing a little bit broader. But, but it, it sort of, again, you know, with the analogy, sort of imagine some synagogue in, you know, uh, Poland having you know a, a branch in New York 
in the 1800s, you know, that wouldn't make any sense. Like, it's not, they don't know what's going on in New York, right? They're not, they're not, um, so, yeah. so I think that that's how we really want to think about, well, what would the world look like if we absolutely flipped it and we said, so we should have at, uh, put this in our presentation, but we forgot, I forgot. There's a project called SecularSynagogue.com, which uh, was founded a, a year or so ago. Uh, and and uh, we had that founder on our podcast as well. She's a secular humanistic rabbi. The fact that it happens to be secular is not so relevant. The point is that it is a online synagogue. There are no physical members whatsoever. There's no physical programs. You could imagine that eventually secularsynagogue.com may have an annual festival where people come in person to meet one another and create those relationships. But there, it's like the, the physical is the adjunct to the digital. So we're all in favor of that, right? It, we, we're not saying, I'm not saying that, um, that a world in which we only sat in our homes in our bathrobe and interacted with Judaism purely digitally would be a good world. But imagine a world, imagine a limud, right, in which everybody did the, the limuding, the learning, pre, before they came, right? And what limud was all about was, was discussions of, of, of all those different podcasts that they listened to or videos that they watched. I don't know. Like, imagine what that might look like. I think, so I, we're going to go, we're, so we, we're going to get to questions. We want to just give a little bit of time for everybody to, to schmooze with each other about this um, in that spirit. So I'm gonna quick read an email that we got from, or two emails that we got from listeners, um, and then we'll split into groups of like three, just arbitrary folks near you. Um, Shabbat Shalom! That's the beginning of an email. Note that. Um, Shabbat Shalom from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a big fan of Judaism Unbound. I typically listen during my Saturday morning run, Saturday morning, usually along a river near my home. I call my runs going to shul because one, I feel like you are talking directly to me during the podcast. He expands a little there, I shortened it. He talks about how intimate the feeling is, like Dan mentioned before. Two, I feel a part of a large community of similar-minded listeners around the US and probably the world. The probably seems to be true based on where we are today. Three, the topics so resonate with me because the traditional bricks and mortar approach to our faith has long been inaccessible to many American Jews. I say this as someone whose Jewish journey has included a secular cultural childhood, modern Orthodox teen flirtation and wedding, several Jewish day schools, conservative raising of my children, and most recently evolution to a reconstructionist approach that values a commitment to work towards social justice and inclusion. Um, he goes on a little more, but to close, thank you for the invaluable, crucial work that you have done and continue to do. A loyal listener in Atlanta. Okay, so that's source one, and once again, we're not sharing this because we want to be like, oh, we have listeners who like us, and that's great. We want you to think about what does it reflect that somebody is experiencing a Jewish podcast as a community? So what does that mean? What does it mean that somebody's doing this on Shabbat, perhaps? Um, what does it mean, this piece about um, having an option that's different from traditional brick-and-mortar institutions? All of those pieces. So that's source one. And then source two, we just got this a few days ago. Hi there. I just love your podcast and listen regularly here in Kuala Lumpur, where I live. My only suggestion is to please slow down when speaking. It sounds like you have doubled the speed of the podcast. We didn't. We did. Thank you also for being, you can listen on double speed. And we <laughs> Maybe he accidentally pressed the button on his phone. Yeah. And we um, thank you also for being so LGBT friendly. Thanks for hearing my comments. His name. Um, so that's two sources. We'll do our best over the next few minutes to switch back and forth between them so that you can reflect on both with them up. Find a couple folks, talk about what strikes you about these two sources, what they reflect about digital Jewish experience. Yeah, there's a few of them. Um, and there's, there's someone else here who's a member of the uh, second synagogue. Cool. Oh, I was going to say. Hey, I hate to do this. You could have been doing this on Facebook. Yeah. So yeah. So do this. So yeah. Maybe at the end of the session, everybody should get everybody should get each other's like digital contact information, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, and continue. Um, but just open floor. What what arose? Oh, we didn't. We did a bad job of switching back and forth. My apologies. But so what emerged in talking about these two emails? Um, what did what did y'all have to say about the digital Jewish experiences of these two folks? 
Yeah. So it raised the question with me about what it means to be in a community. Great. Because nothing that is said here is, is involves this person having given anything to the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Community is about, it's all about receiving what this person received from their experience. Yeah. From you, and that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, what is it a real community if people aren't giving something? Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. And this led to another question, which was, when you're, um, is there a difference between a Facebook group and a podcast? Because a Facebook group, anyone can contribute, as long as you have moderators <laughs> to mm -hmm. say, you know, this is not acceptable, this is not part of what the group's about, etc. Mm. Um, but anyone can give their yeah. two cents, everyone, everyone can contribute. Whereas with a podcast, most of the time you're just receiving. Yeah. So my question then becomes, how much would you guys be prepared to open up your podcast kind of editorially yeah. so that other people could speak and other voices could be heard? Yeah. And then how much is your podcast? Right, yeah, so that, that's great. So those are two really good themes. So one, I'll tell you, Dan and I, um, when we got this email, and since then, have been like kibitzing about like, are, are we a community? Um, and I, spe I also obsess over this because yeah. I've just, I, like, I think the word community is maybe the most overused word, at least in American Jewish life. I don't know about in first, but like, I find that it is used, like synagogues are automatically just communities. Like, ah, my community, we dive in this way. My community, we dive in. Like, community should mean something. Community, for all the reasons you say, should actually constitute a set of people who, as, as a whole, like are there to support each other when there's rough times, are there to celebrate with each other when there's good times, regularly. Like, I find that most communities are not communities. Like most institutions, most synagogues, there are communities within them, and like the board or the most involved members are a community, but I actually don't think that they're communities. And I would say the same about us. I actually, I mostly, when I do that wrestling, am on the side that we're not a community. We don't have, um, we would like, like, to answer your question about the Facebook, like, if we had additional staff people, more money, more time, we would be doing a lot of what you're describing. It's, it's really just a bandwidth thing for us. It's really just, because um, we've tried to do some of those, and I haven't been able to commit fully, and I'm like, I hate that. Because I think if we set up some of those more communal experiences, it would work. Now, we have had some people in local context, Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana, a few others, who set up like podcast clubs in the way that you'd set up a book club, where you listen, you come together, have the wine, the crackers, whatever, um, and you schmooze. And to me, if, we, like, if, if I had more time, we would look to set up a lot of those, and also the idea would be those people set up their own visions of, you know, then what, from the words of our podcast. So I think it's a I mean, the only thing I would add is the baby point, you know, yeah. it's like, who knows, you know, like that's, and, and, and that's where, right, like I, where I feel pressure about is like, I don't want to be a community now, I'm not, it's not a community now, you know, but what's interesting to me is like, that this guy, something, so yeah, something he's happened. calling it, whatever he's calling it community, he, he's got a need, a human need that, you know, somehow he's not getting met by the real communities, you know, right? So, so what's going on there? Like that, yeah. you know, needs, needs 50 years of, 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 of experimentation, but I, you know, that's, that's kind of... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so two things. So the first email made me think about kind of the safety in being able to explore things online. It's vulnerable to yes. show up to a different type of school. Yeah. Um, but you know, go on incognito window and you can do whatever you want. Um, yeah. <laughs> so meaning like, what does it mean to explore different types of Judaism in a very safe way where you don't yeah. feel like you're kind of yeah. crossing lines or whatever? Yeah, can I quick, and yeah. then you're, I want to come back sure. to say, that's a huge, I think we way underestimate the importance of that in a number of senses. So one is, I talk about onegs a lot. I talk about like, or kiddishes, like right after services, the, the kibitzing that people do, just talking, and like, that, those are the times when people just drop acronyms and use Hebrew words and Yiddish words and like if you're somebody who doesn't know what X, Y, or Z means in that moment for whatever reason, um, it is very likely you're feeling a sense of insecurity. When I talk to people who feel boxed out of Jewish life, it's usually not, ah, the prayer service was like really hard for me. It's like people said something that I totally didn't get afterward. And I think that the internet is this place where in person you don't have the ability like you have to out yourself. If you don't know what a Hebrew word means, you say, oh, what's that mean? And that's saying, you know, oh, I know less about this thing than you. It's like a vulnerable thing that some people are comfortable doing, others aren't. I don't know what that acronym stands for. Having the internet 
um, that you can go to afterwards and like, oh, that person said something, what, what did that mean? And being able to just instantly look up what it was, it's a way of people get, getting over some of those hurdles of communal involvement that is really crucial. Um, so I appreciate that. What was your second? And then we're gonna go right here. To add sort of what the second email, um, there is no way for someone who is disengaged from Jewish life to say this is just a need of the community as Jewish internet becomes more robust. There is no umbrella to say here's what I want to know about, here's what I want to explore, what Jewish online source should I go to? So just kind of throwing out that we have kind of a quality control issue and a search issue. If you have a vision for what that would look like and you know we can map our five year plan, like, that's, you know, look, that's, that's something we have thought about not that we've actually started to do, but like, I think that's a need that we I mean, one, one of the interesting things I write right now, if you type in any Jewish search term into yeah. Google, you tend to get Chabad.org, ReformJudaism.org, MyJewishLearning. Those three, really. Yeah, really um, and like, if you're a kind of, if you're somebody who's not saying how, um, what is, what is, what has Judaism been in the past? Let's put it that way, right? Those are, those are telling you what Judaism has been in the past. If you're wanting to know, like, what are the most interesting experiments going on right now, you know, you can't find those. So actually, it's one of our dreams to create some kind of um, curated or some kind of way of, of, of bringing people inside of that. Right? All the institutions of American Jewish life and Israel, right, they took 100 years to develop. So, like, so what would it, what, you know, can we imagine the patience that allows the, the digital Jewish world to develop over 100 years? And yeah. We're going to wrap it right up. I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming. But what a concept, can Judaism exist on another planet? I mean, can Judaism exist without boundaries, without walls? What about the Erev? Where does the Erev come in? You stay within the Erev so that you can continue Jewish life? Oh, there's a lot of things to think about there, isn't there? <laughs> Look, listen to Jewish Talk. We'll be covering lots of topics like this. If you've enjoyed this episode of Jewish Talk, please give us five stars on wherever you get your podcast from and leave a short review. That's great too. But better still, tell your friends, tell your family to listen to Jewish Talk and get them to tell their friends and family to listen to Jewish Talk. That would be really great. And I thank you very much in advance. I'm Ed Horwich. This is Jewish Talk, the podcast for anybody interested in Jewish culture and Jewish life.